Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change, sponsored by LionRock.life. I think there's a lot of fear around admitting to having an addiction problem while being a nurse because, number one, you don't want people thinking you've been, you know, under substances while on the job. Number two, there's that fear of losing your job. Because like, if I admit I have something, am I going to be fired now because of this problem? Also, I know that there's fear around losing your actual license with the Board of Registered Nursing or, or needing to go on probation or, you know, more like all the things that could jeopardize your career. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. And today we have Stephanie. Stephanie was always a high achiever. She felt that if she kept things together, then people would leave her alone. When her father died at 16 years old, she doubled down on that strategy, keeping her external appearance spotless when internally she was a mess. She began drinking heavily then and felt like she didn't belong anywhere. She sought out other broken people and found them quickly and her drinking jumped to new levels. She was unwavering in hiding her internal world. She made it into a great college. She completed her nursing program on time and immediately started working as a nurse. Heavy drinking was under the surface, but it never affected her work. It was just her way of coping with the tragedy and pain she faced every day. Her patients got 100% always. She never wavered in the quality of care that they received. Then the pandemic hit, which poured gasoline on the fire. Each day she would finish and immediately start drinking. Even then it still felt normal, but cracks started to form until she finally realized she truly needed help. Today she's found a community and the coping skills she needs to continue to do the challenging work of nursing, but this time without alcohol. She shares her story in hopes of helping other nurses going through similar and thinking that it's not possible to get help without affecting their job. Absolutely amazing woman. Stephanie is three years sober as of this recording and her experience is so similar to many nurses out there who I have spoken with where they are afraid to get help because they don't want to affect their career. And oftentimes people are over drinking and it's not affecting their work per se. They're not drinking at work. And so they believe that that means they don't have a problem. And Stephanie came on here to talk about the unique struggles that face the nursing community, which is something that I am very passionate about and believe that we need to support our nursing community much more heavily, particularly in helping them find safe places and anonymous places to recover so that they can do the incredible work that they do on a daily basis. So without further ado, I give you Stephanie. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Thank you so much for being here. Of course. I think it's 
so important to talk about these things. So very happy. So will you give us a little bit about how you grew up? What was your life like in the early years? Sure. So I grew up in the Bay Area, California, to two immigrant parents. So me and my sister are first generation born here. And that already kind of gave me that sense of where do I belong? Where do I fit in here? Always knowing I was a little bit different and feeling different and couldn't understand why. But, you know, I had my mom and my dad and my sister. We grew up in a little suburban town. And, you know, it was a pretty normal childhood for me. Had a couple of cousins, you know, not too far away, had normal family holiday gatherings. And I would say generally my childhood was pretty happy. My father was an alcoholic. He was like a really happy alcoholic. He was just like very affectionate and always told us how much he loved us when he was, you know, drunk. But it was one of those things that you just don't talk about. Now, when I bring up that he was an alcoholic, nobody wants to address it. He's passed away since he passed away when I was 16. And you don't talk ill of the dead. So I'm not allowed to talk about that, right? But I think it's just important to call out things for what it was because then it doesn't add to any narratives that we all already have about how something is supposed to look or how somebody should be if they're a certain way. What did his alcoholism look like? How did it affect you? What were some of the ways that it affected you that were maybe less than ideal? You know, honestly, I can't even think about any negative. It's so funny to, or so weird to look back and think, because honestly, all I ever saw from him, and maybe I was just naive and don't really, you know, have great memories of, I was just so young when he passed away. But I just remember him sitting in front of the TV, drinking a beer, drinking many beers, drinking lots of beers. He had Crown Royal hidden in his cabinets. And, you know, there were these big jugs of wine. He is what I see as a typical dad, drinking a beer on the couch, watching sports. There was nothing like when you hear stories about alcoholic parents there was nothing that was very typical of that those things with my dad. How did he pass? So he was just a generally kind of unhealthy conditions. He had diabetes, heart issues, just didn't really take great care of himself, plus the alcoholic part. So he ended up passing from a stroke. Like I said, I was 16 when that happened. When that happened, that's when everything just really changed for me. And that's really where I always kind of start my story into alcoholism. I had already, I have for many years felt very different. My best friends were always like a different race than me. And so that alone, I was just like, oh man, why is my family different than their family? When my father passed, I was the only person I knew who had lost a parent to death. You know, you have friends that have divorced parents, but nobody had lost a parent to death that I knew about. So my feeling of feeling like I didn't belong just grew even bigger. I was desperate to find connection. I, you know, had my friends there, but felt like, you know, hard to talk to them, can't really connect. And so what I was looking for was just anything that would make me feel better. The first time I drank, it was with my best friend at the time, her older brothers, she came over to have a sleepover. Her older brothers had provided her with, it was like Bacardi and Mike's hard lemonade. <laughs> and from that first sleepover and first time drinking, I, we blacked out or I blacked out. I actually don't even know if she did, but I blacked out, but had the time of my life. Me and my best friend were up all night singing karaoke, like at the top of our lungs. And I don't, 
I don't know, looking back how my mom didn't know we were like under the influence of something. <laughs> it was ridiculous. The next morning I woke up so sick. I had to take a relative to the BART station. And as I was driving back home, I was like throwing up in a plastic bag as I'm driving. And for some reason, like it's something I wanted to keep doing, not the throwing up part, but the drinking part. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, that was a great time. Who cares about what happened after that? Right. I had such a great time blacking out because I wasn't feeling all of the pain that I was in at that time. And so once I had a taste of that, I started looking for friends that did that because I wanted to participate. I wanted to connect. I wanted to feel numb and I just wanted to you know, not have to think about how I was feeling. I always blacked out. I thought that's just what happened when you drank. From the very get-go, I was blacking out. It wasn't until recovery that I learned that not everyone blacks out. And I was just mind blown. I asked my now best friend, who is a normal drinker, hey, how many times have you blacked out in your life? And she's like, I don't know, two? <laughs> what? So funny that you bring this up and that you talk about it because I'm pretty sure I've talked about this on the podcast where in rehab, they told me that blacking out was not normal and I had the exact same reaction of it's not. I, I, that was news to me. They said, no, it's really not normal. It's not an, it's not a good sign. It's not a normal sign of normal drinking. It's not really a sign of normal recreational, you know, and same reaction as you. Yeah. And still, I still can't really wrap my head around it. I was just talking to a girlfriend just a couple of weeks ago and who doesn't really drink. And I asked her, well, why don't you? And she goes, oh, cause I had blacked out once and I, I didn't like it. I was like, that's weird. I love it. <laughs> yeah. We call that, we call that, you know, where will I end up? Yep. It's, it's like, so choose it's like your a own roller adventure. coaster. Yeah, choose your own adventure. Exactly. Except you're not really choosing. So I had, you know, started hanging out with friends that drank on the weekends. And I had learned very early on that in my family, we don't talk about things. <laughs> First of all, we don't talk about things. Mm -hmm. And second of all, we don't talk about things that are hard or uncomfortable. And so what my strategy for life at that point as a 16 year old was that as long as I did what I was supposed to do, which was go to school, finish school, go to college, nobody would question what I was doing, who I was doing what with. So I did great in high school. I had no issues. I still quote unquote brag to this day that I've never gotten detention because I don't want to, I never want Wanted to be on anyone's radar. When I went to college, I got accepted into a private university, had gone to public schools all my life. My family was pretty poor growing up. Another thing that made me feel out of the norm of my peers. But when I went to this private university for nursing, I found myself feeling even more uncomfortable. I was around people who, you know, were driving BMWs and parents had bought them a house to live in for the four years of college in San Francisco. <laughs> I was like, that's weird. Um, we have dorms. I was just so uncomfortable and I just kept drinking with them because that was the only time that I felt connected. And my drinking... I don't know when it took off. I try to reflect on that fairly often. You know, I, they always talk about there's this line you cross into becoming an alcoholic. I don't know, because like I said, from the beginning, I was blacking out. I had always craved alcohol after that sense that I knew that it numbed everything, that I didn't have to deal with anything. I could easily sweep it under the rug, thinking I would deal with it another day. But in actuality, I never dealt with any of the stuff that I swept under the rug until I went into recovery, when everything just resurfaced. So I finished nursing school in four years, got my first job as a nurse. 
And again, still drinking a lot. I don't even know, you know, how to quantify it. I was drinking every time I wasn't working. My shift when I first started nursing was a perfect alcoholic shift. I worked 3 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. So I was able to go out after work and hang out with friends who were at bars, sleep, all day until my shift started at three and be totally fine to take care of patients. You know, when you think of an alcoholic, you think of somebody who doesn't take care of themselves, not trustworthy, you know, lots of everyone has their own stereotypes in their head. You don't think of that when you think of nurses. For me, it was really hard to admit I was an alcoholic because I'm a nurse, right? I take care of other people. I can't be an alcoholic. I've moved into leadership roles in nursing. I can't be an alcoholic. I haven't lost anything. I haven't lost my husband, my house, any of those things. But I think it's just so important to talk about the fact that being an alcoholic is something you can't see. You can't look at somebody and just say, okay, yes, you are an alcoholic. No, you're not an alcoholic. It's something that's inside that you can't just judge somebody by how they look, what they do, where they live. You know, there's this culture of drinking with nursing because you had a really bad shift. Let's go get a drink. Oh my gosh, the shift was awesome. Let's celebrate ourselves. Let's go get a drink. We worked every other weekend. And so it was just like, hey, what are you doing on so-and-so weekend? Let's do a wine weekend all weekend. (laughs) Let's do that. Just a way to connect with your coworkers, but also just lots of always drinking, finding reasons to drink. And I really didn't ever think that I had a problem, although it was in the back of my head because I knew I had the genes from my dad. I questioned it. I would, you know, every once in a while take those quizzes online, like, are you an alcoholic? I think it always told me that I had to be concerned. At some point, you just find that you're just drinking into oblivion because, well, and that was my story. I don't want to speak for all nurses because we're not all drunks, (laughs) but I will say there's a lot that could benefit from just having your mind opened and like kind of looking at yourself and seeing like, is do I have a problem drinking? You don't have to identify as an alcoholic. You can just look at the quantity and think, okay, maybe I should try to cut back. What were some, I think a lot of people also think my drinking doesn't affect my work. You know, it, I haven't shown up to work drunk. I, I don't drink at work, etc. What are some of the ways that it affected you that maybe, you know, weren't related to being a nurse, but eventually brought you to a place where you wanted to try sobriety? Again, never drank on the job, never felt like my work was affected. I was always trying to do exceptional work so that nobody knew what was going on beneath the surface. I was very good at camouflaging what was going on. In fact, you know, when I share with people that I had been depressed and on antidepressants for many years, everyone's always so shocked because I have such a bubbly personality and very happy. But I think I just learned over time to have that persona because then people don't ask me how I'm doing. People aren't going to ask me, you know, is anything bothering you? So the pandemic came in 2020. At the time, I was working a remote job. So still as a nurse, but just at home, everything was shut down. I found that as soon as my shift or as soon as I was done with work that day, 3, 3.30ish, I had nothing to do. I closed my laptop and I was like twiddling my thumbs. Okay, what do I going to do now? I guess I'll go drink some wine. Normally, I had been drinking wine, you know, dinner and then after dinner. Wine was my drink of choice, you know, most recently. I would have a bottle of wine as an appetizer. I would have dinner and then it was still so early that I'd open up another bottle of wine and have that. And because, you know, I can't waste wine. I don't want to cork it. It's not going to taste as good as, you know, it does the next day. Just finish 
that bottle too. I was just like, wow, I'm kind of drinking, you know, more than usual. But at the same time, I was talking to my husband. I was asking him, do you think that I have a problem drinking? Like, I'm not sure. And he, you know, I said like, oh no, I don't, I think you're a normal drinker. But also when he said that in my head, I kind of knew I was disagreeing with him because I had, you know, I knew that I blacked out. Like some nights I didn't even know how I got into bed. <laughs> I was just, I would wake up and like, oh, did I walk myself to bed or did somebody tuck me in? What I like to always point out is that, you know, when my husband and I met in 2014, he was like immediately one of my favorite people. Hence why I married him. But in 2020, my thinking got really poisoned and out of control. And just, I was just unrecognizable at this point. I joke that because me and my husband, we like musicals. So sometimes we'll like break out into song from some kind of musical that we like. And we, at the time, I think in 2020, we were really into Hamilton. So we'd randomly like burst out into like a Hamilton song. But when I was starting, when my drinking ramped up because of the pandemic, he would do that. And I would immediately think, oh my God, I hate you. I want a divorce. And that was so weird to me because I have no real reason to divorce him. He is such an amazing husband. But my thinking was just like, I'm so miserable. I don't know why I'm going to blame you because you're doing something that's bothering me and maybe that'll fix it. You know, I started just getting unhappy with him. Nothing about that made sense because he wasn't doing anything. I remember we went on a weekend trip to Pismo Beach. We went on this hike. It was too much of an incline for me that at the top of the hill, I told him that this marriage was not going to work and we needed a divorce because I didn't like the hike he chose. (laughs) Saying that now is so ridiculous. I knew something was going on. I talked to my therapist. I begged my psychiatrist actually for a higher dose of antidepressants. And she said, okay, well, you know, how much are you drinking? Let's talk about that first. And for some reason, yeah, some reason that time I was completely honest, you know, prior to that, every time doctors and, you know, therapists ask, it was always just like, oh, I'm having one glass of wine with dinner. But for some reason, I was totally honest with her. I told her how much I was drinking. And she said, you know, we can't really increase your, your dose until you can try to cut back on your drinking because, you know, alcohol is a depressant. Doesn't make any sense to increase antidepressants if you're just depressing yourself with more alcohol. And I was like, oh, that's fine. I can totally decrease my drinking. So let's schedule an appointment in a week and I, I'll be fine. I'll get, I'll be able to increase the dose. So that night I had told my myself, okay, maybe a couple, a glass or two of wine, definitely not two bottles. And so I had my one glass and that was, you know, finished in 15 minutes or less. (laughs) It was just like, oh gosh, this might be a little tougher than I thought. Started to think, okay, pouring the second glass. And I remember having almost like an out of body experience because my mind was saying, don't drink anymore. You don't need this wine. But my hand was like pouring the bottle. And yeah, I was drinking like, against your own will. Yes, it was insane. I It was actually really terrifying. But when that realization came over me, I thought, okay, I have a problem. I admitted it right there because that it was scary to me how I had no control. And so I, you know, I talked to her you know, in our follow-up appointment, I said, you're right. I have a problem. I don't know what to do. She had suggested I check out a 12 step meeting. And I was like, no, 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 I don't belong there. (laughs) That's for people who wear like the trench coats and are drinking the paper bag bottle. Yeah. Under the bridge. Yep. All those stereotypes. And she said, you know what? No, try Why don't you check out a women's meeting? 
and everything was Zoom because it was pandemic. So she said, you could keep your camera off. You don't even have to put your real name, like just listen. And so I did that and I was so shocked, first of all, to see how normal everyone looked. Nobody looked like the person under the bridge. At first glance, I was like, okay, these people cannot be alcoholics. They're too happy. Like they have, there's not, there's no pain. (laughs) Not enough pain here. Yeah. And it wasn't until later that I realized what I was seeing was a more healed version of them. Right. Yes. Because we come into the rooms. Yeah. We come into the rooms very broken, but the longer we stay in, we start to put ourselves back together. But anyways, I just listened to the stories, you know, never really shared anything for a while because I was just listening and taking everything in. And what I found was no matter how we all looked different, came from different backgrounds, had different careers, et cetera, et cetera. We all had felt that feeling where we felt like we couldn't connect with somebody. We felt like we were different than somebody. We were trying to make sense of like our place in the world. So many of the same themes. And I felt like, wow, I actually feel like I belong here in these rooms, which I never you know, I would have never thought unless my psychiatrist had prompted me to. So I, I made the choice to just see how long I could go. I stopped drinking. And on the third day, I remember being really alarmed because I was driving home, I think from the hospital, I had to pick something up at work or something. And I had to pull over at my dentist office, which was on the way home from the hospital. And I was so lightheaded, nauseous. I was seeing stars. I was not well. I just felt ill. I was like digging in my trunk for a bag because I knew I was going to throw up. And I had a weird thought, like I didn't want to throw up in the grass in front of my dentist because then he would see, you know, irrational thoughts. (laughs) So I was really looking for that bag because I wanted to be polite about my throwing up. Of course. And I just remember being really like, oh, maybe this is my mic because I get migraines. Maybe this is just a migraine situation. Although I knew it wasn't. I knew I was having withdrawal symptoms. That blew my mind and terrified me because when I think of people detoxing, and having the symptoms, I think of the people who are like hardcore drinking, like drinking like whiskey out of the bottle all day. And like, you know, I just had wine. (laughs) Wine's classy, right? How can I be detoxing from wine? I remember thinking, oh man, yeah, this is scary. I need to uh, maybe be sober a little longer than I thought. (laughs) And so I kept going to the rooms. I told myself I didn't need to do the steps. So I didn't need to do the steps of the 12 step program. I didn't need a sponsor. If I ended up doing the steps, oh, I don't need to do amends. I, you know, had my version of how I wanted my sobriety to look like or my recovery or my break from drinking to look like. So I think it was in the maybe the second or the third week of me attending these meetings, I met somebody who was around my age, which was another thing. I was so shocked to see a lot of people around my age in the rooms, which I really liked because I always thought that people in 12 step programs were, you know, had all white hair and had been drinking for 60 years. So she had told me, Hey, you know, you want to meet for coffee and like, let's talk a little bit more about, you know, your story. I met her thinking, okay, she's probably going to ask me to be my, like if I need a sponsor, 
but I don't want a sponsor. So I'm going to make sure I say no, but I left that Starbucks meeting with a sponsor because, you know, (laughs) things, things don't go according to my plan. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I got a sponsor. We started working the steps and I told myself I wasn't going to do a couple of them. I didn't want to believe in any type of God because I had issues with that growing up in a very Catholic household. But what I loved about the, but the steps, you can make your own higher power, which really resonated with me and ended up turning my will over to a higher power. So again, that's one thing I thought I wasn't going to do, ended up doing that. And I didn't want to make amends because none of the amends I had to make were really my fault, right? (laughs) So I had ideas of like how I was going to navigate the amends part when we got to it. And interestingly enough, actually proud to say now that the one person I told myself I wasn't going to make amends to was the first person. And I made amends to and ended up going through my whole list. And yeah, I've been in recovery now for three years and never thought I'd make it to three years. I thought that once I stopped drinking, my life would be over because what is a life without having happy hours and, you know, drinks at dinner with friends? Like I didn't know how to live. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, everybody. Ashley here. As many of you know, I got sober at 19 after going to many treatment centers. And years later, when my aunt passed away as a result of her addiction, my father and I and our business partner, Ian Crabb, started a telehealth company in 2010 called Lion Rock Recovery. We started with a PowerPoint and a dream, hoping to help people overcome barriers to treatment like affordability, accessibility, and privacy, which we were able to create in this program that we started. Today, Lion Rock Recovery, our little PowerPoint, treats people all over the world. We have over 200 clinicians, and it's an amazing program. We have an intensive outpatient program that has so many different time tracks to fit into people's schedules and specialties like professionals group, LGBTQIA, trauma, and many, many more. We are able to help people anywhere in the world with any schedule, and all of it can be done privately. This is our dream come true, and Lion Rock Recovery is available to any of you who have family members who are struggling or if you're struggling and you need to talk to somebody. Our admissions team is there around the clock for a free phone call, also a live chat on the website. There's so much there that we've worked so hard to bring to you. Please check it out, lionrockrecovery.com, or you can call the 800 number, 800-258-6550. Thank you so much. Let's talk about some of the unique situations of dealing with alcoholism while trying to be a, you know, while being a nurse. How did that help or hurt you get sober? What was some of the unique things to nursing that you had to deal with? So I think the biggest thing is that addiction in nursing isn't talked about. You know, it's something that I wish there was more information about and maybe I could have gotten sober sooner. But I think there's a lot of fear around admitting to having an addiction problem while being a nurse because number one, you don't want people thinking you've been, you know, under substances while on the job. Number two, there's that fear of losing your job because like if I admit I have something, am I going to be fired now because... 
of this problem. Also, I know that there's fear around losing your actual license with the Board of Registered Nursing or, or needing to go on probation or, you know, more like all the things that could jeopardize your career. And I would say that, yeah, I wish there was just more resources that could help alleviate those fears for a lot of people, kind of show that it's actually something normal doesn't mean that you've ever put your patients in harm. I mean, I showed up for my patients 150%. I always made sure to give the best to them and was very, you know, I never even thought about drinking on the job. Like that just never even crossed my mind. It was always once I clocked out, went home, that was all my business, right? I needed to decompress. And especially with the pandemic that's, you know, turning the corner here, you're getting a lot of burnout. You have a lot of nurses leaving the profession, but what about the ones who are still burnt out and staying? Like what are their coping mechanisms? Do they have help? I don't know. It's just such an important topic. And I wish there was just more out there to support, support the nurses. What has been some of the feedback you've received from other nurses when you told them that you started going to meetings and got sober? Yeah, a lot of them were shocked. You know, they primarily said I they didn't know I had a problem. A lot of them tried to kind of uh, say, oh, no, 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 you don't have a problem. Like try to tell me that I didn't have a problem. A lot of them though, my really good friends were super proud. You know, I just think that after I got over the initial, I don't know how long it took me, but I did keep it pretty private for a while. Once I started talking about it, I think a lot of people were just kind of interested in the story and how I got to this point because outwardly I had been, you know, a really good nurse for my patients leadership positions, always happy and bubbly. Like how does that person find herself in 12 step meetings? Well, I'll tell you, it's, you know, not having connection. It's not feeling like you can talk about things. It's keeping things inside until they eat you up and those unhealthy coping mechanisms. So yeah, I would say that generally the perception has been pretty positive. Uh, I can't even recall anything, you know, negative. Do you think that there are a lot of nurses who have questionable drinking who aren't willing to ask for help because they think that the board might get involved? Not sure about that specifically. I think that there are just nurses who are unwilling to look at their drinking, mostly because of, you know, if I'm a nurse, I can't have a problem. I'm a nurse helping other people. I'm not drinking on the job. I think just understanding what it means to have an addiction and what it means to have a drinking problem or be a problem drinker. I think just that education itself at first is enough because once you see the differences, what problem drinking looks like. Yeah. Like even just like, Hey, you guys know that blacking out isn't normal. Like I am sure that if we did some type of informational session and had everyone close their eyes and raise their hand, if they've ever blacked out, there would be a lot of hands raised. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think it's just that it's just, you know, there's just that idea of what an alcoholic looks like. That stereotype doesn't fit with how they perceive themselves, which is, I think, the biggest barrier to getting help. I do think that there is fear around, you know, is my boss going to find out? Am I going to lose my job? I'm not sure that there's real fear around the board of nursing that much only because they only get involved when, you know, you're drinking on the job or things like that. What about 
I mean, maybe you can bring some clarity for people. If your boss finds out you're trying to cut back on drinking or you're interested, are you going to lose your job if your boss finds out that you are trying to cut back your drinking? I don't think so. But I think we have those fears. And I mean, fear is what drives so much of addiction. I feel like fear, you know, there's always underlying fear of something and our mind can just jump to so many different scenarios. I think there is a fear of if I tell anyone that I work with that I have a drinking problem, anytime something goes wrong, are they going to tie it to that? Right. It's that fear that if something happens with my patient, are they going to say, oh, well, I know she has a drinking problem. Maybe she was under the influence or something like that. I think there's that type of fear in terms of, you know, telling your boss that you want to try to cut back on drinking. I, I don't think that should be a problem. I told my boss, I was, you know, had a good, really good relationship with him when I started going to meetings and he was super supportive. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. I just wish that more people would talk about things that they're going through. How did the Asian background piece play a part of your recovery and getting sober? Oh yeah, that that is still something I'm trying to dissect a little bit, but I know that in my culture specifically, lots of drinking, never talking about what it is. So like if somebody's an alcoholic, we don't call them an alcoholic because, you know, that's negative. A lot of sweeping under the rug. In my family specifically, I wasn't taught a lot of coping mechanisms. It was always like if something was wrong, the response would be, okay, we'll just be strong. And I didn't know how to do that. And I think the other part was just kind of feeling always like an outsider because culturally things were different. You know, if things are different with me in my home, like how do I fit in if I were to go to a friend's house? I don't know. It's just always a, very uncomfortable. I just remember feeling anytime I went to a friend's house that I was uncomfortable. If they were to meet my parents or, you know, their parents and my parents talked to each other. I felt uncomfortable because would they understand each other? You know, they had heavy accents. So I don't know. I was just always just, I was just a ball of discomfort. And alcohol helped with that, right? Yeah. It numbs everything. When I started drinking specifically to kind of not feel the pain I was feeling over my dad passing away. It was just wild to me in recovery that I had realized that I didn't process anything around his death. I had literally used alcohol to numb and freeze those feelings for all of those years I was drinking. So it wasn't until I was like 35. I think I was 34 turning to 35 is when I got sober. I like started grieving again. I just, everything that I had felt and tried to numb came out during that first year of recovery. I would like be driving and a random memory of my dad would pop in. And normally it's like a happy memory, right? Like, oh, I remember we used to go on these trips or whatever, but I would start bawling because I had never allowed myself to do that. And you know, when you do, when you go through that for me, when I was going through that first year in recovery, it would have been so easy to just say like, I don't want to feel this. This is too hard. This is like, I'm going back to the bottle. But what I found for that scenario specifically was I felt like I was able to finally honor him by remembering him 
and not numbing things and not sweeping him away where it didn't hurt anymore. I've been able to process it a little more. I don't know if I'm fully, pro who knows, you know, when you fully process things, but I am happy to say that I have not kept those feelings frozen. And I think the biggest thing that I've learned in recovery is just like, don't let things stay inside and brew. Like I will just share anything now. I'm just an open book because I don't want those feelings to get to me again. I don't want them to like eat me alive and, you know, tempt me to drink at any point yeah. anymore. What does your family think about you not drinking? Do they have feelings about you going from drinking to not drinking? Yeah. So when I first started telling them that I wasn't drinking, my mom's reaction was, oh, good. <laughs> I was like, okay, thanks. My sister, same. I mean, it was kind of, I think, just a, okay, good. You're not drinking because, you know, they didn't want to address the fact that they knew I was drinking too much. Like they did know because there were always comments about like, oh, you're drinking again or oh, you have so much wine on your counter. Like always those little comments. So they knew I was drinking. But when I told them that I wasn't anymore, it was always just like, oh, good, I'm glad. And then it wasn't really a conversation we talked a lot about. I remember though, when I first started going into the rooms and sharing that with my husband, he really truly didn't think I had a problem. So he was just like, I don't know why you're going to these meetings. You don't have a problem. Which to me almost, well, it still infuriated me because I was still poisoned in my brain. And so everything he was saying was making me mad. But I, I also thought like, wow, how can I live with somebody who has no idea that I have a problem? And then I started thinking, oh, I know exactly why. It's because I am so good at hiding things. I am so good at acting normal that I'm here blacked out and he thinks I'm coherent. He thinks that I am remembering this conversation when, you know, a lot of times I'm always like, wait, when did we talk about that? It's because I was blacked out and I just really good at pretending that I was totally fine. So yeah, now that, you know, he's kind of seen how my life specifically has improved. He is like fully supportive. Yeah. He's never been not supportive, just didn't understand it. One of the big fears I had when getting sober was like, okay, how are we going to travel? We're really big into traveling, always wanting to, you know, try the drink of the country. <laughs> and, you know, we just came back from Italy in May and especially in Italy, right? It's wine flowing all over the place. It was our second time in Italy. The first time I was still into the disease. So I was able to enjoy, you know, the wine this time I had, you know, I was a little worried that I'd be tempted, but it was beautiful. We were able to take our son. He's just a little bit over a year and I was able to be fully present and I didn't need wine. I could, you know, just have gelato. It was fine. <laughs> There's other things other than, you know, drinking. And I think that when you're in the disease, that fixation you have on alcohol, it just takes over. It was just insane. Did you have fears about not being able to have fun again? Yes. I was so afraid of, you know, not being invited places anymore. Mm. People thinking, oh, Stephanie is so boring. She doesn't drink. Let's not invite her. I remember one of the first couple of outings that I attended sober. I remember saying like, Hey, am I still fun? Yep, yep, <laughs> and, yep. and everyone was like, you are literally exactly the same. I don't know what you're worried about. And so, yeah, big fear around not being fun anymore. But you know, that was just all in my head. It's, it's all fine. And the connections I have with people now are even better because I remember them. I'm not saying weird stuff 
like, I don't know. I, I mean, I probably am saying weird stuff, but it's like, I'm choosing to say these weird yeah, yeah, things yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Do nurses come to you? You know, have you had nurses come to you privately and say, Hey, you know, like, I think I might be struggling. Yeah. So I have several friends who have reached out saying like, you know, how did you know you had a problem? Tell me a little bit more. They experimented or were looking to experiment with sobriety. And, you know, even non-nurses have reached out. I've been so open with my story that people are, it's just so nice to know that people, it reaches some folks and that it hopefully will help them in their journey to recovery if that's something that they want and need. Will you paint us a picture of what you go through now as a nurse and the coping skills that you have that don't include alcohol? What I've learned is that anytime something's bothering me, I have to just share it with somebody, whether it's my boss, because I'm going through something at work that I'm really struggling with. Like I just have learned, I don't have to do anything alone. Got it. That's the biggest thing. So there isn't, you know, I don't have like a hobby that I go to when I'm feeling stressed. It's more just like, I'm feeling this way. Who can I, who will listen to me? (laughs) Somebody listen to me. Yep. 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 Because I can't keep that inside anymore. It just, it costs me too much. I love that. I love that. That's huge. And that's a coping skill that I use as well. Is like, I need other people to help walk me through things and other people's wisdom and ideas to make sure that, you know, I'm going to check this out with you and see if I'm crazy or if this is, you know, if I have a part in this or that sort of thing, I get very into solution. Definitely. And you know, a lot of the times, once I even say the things out loud, I recognize if it's ridiculous or not, if it's just a figment of my imagination, right? And that's that's the biggest thing. Well, you're amazing, Stephanie. Thank you so, so much for coming on here and sharing of your course. story. I so appreciate it and appreciate you. And I'm going to put our email podcast at lionrock.life. And if anybody wants to get in touch with you, I can connect them with you. Perfect. That sounds great. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It was so fun. So fun. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.